Well, in C.S. Lewis's famous book, Mere Christianity, Lewis argues for the divinity of Christ through a logical argument known as the trilemma. Now, this was not an argument that Lewis came up with, but it was one that he made particularly popular. And the argument goes something like this. Jesus could not have been a good moral teacher. He could not have been merely a prophet of some kind. That's a conclusion that we cannot come to. He was not one who simply taught many good things, but was just a mere man. And the reason you can't conclude that Jesus was just a good moral teacher or some kind of prophet is because he claimed to be God. And we've seen that over and over from our series through Mark. He claims divinity. He did so when he healed the paralytic and forgave the man's sins. When he was challenged by the Pharisees, Jesus declared himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed deity when he gave the apostles the authority to cast out demons. All along, he's been claiming to be God, and a good moral person doesn't do that. A person who's claiming to be God is either lying or they're crazy, they're out of their minds, or in Jesus' case, they're telling the truth. We can respond one of three ways to Jesus' claim to be God, and we'll see all three of those in our text this morning. So join me, if you haven't already, in Mark chapter 3, and I want to reread verses 20 through 21, and it goes like this. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The first way we can respond to Jesus' claim to be God is, along with his family, calling him crazy. Your first point this morning is this. You can respond by believing Jesus is crazy, but that would be foolish. You can respond by saying Jesus is crazy, but that would be foolish. Now, our passage this morning introduces a style of writing that Mark continues to use throughout the book, and it's called the sandwich method. You may have noticed it. In the sandwich method, he introduces a story, but then he interrupts that story with another related story, but then he comes back to the first story and he concludes it. Just for example, in today's passage, Mark introduces Jesus' family and particularly their response to Jesus' claims, but then he interrupts that story with the story about what the scribes are saying about Jesus. But then in verse 31, he comes back to the story about Jesus' family. And we're going to see that several more times throughout the book. Now, why does he write this way? Why does he write this sandwich method where he's interrupting the story? Well, he's actually doing two things in our passage. First... He's filling the time gap. You see, Jesus' family, they had to leave Nazareth and travel north. They had to get to Galilee, and while they're traveling, Jesus is dealing with these scribes who've come down from Jerusalem. So that's one thing he's doing. But another thing he's doing here, this writing style, he's, he's, he's tying two stories together that make one point. And that point for this morning's passage is this. You can reject Jesus, or you can accept him. 
Jesus' family and the scribes are contrasted by those who truly follow Jesus, and we'll see that at the end of our passage. But first, let's just unpack these two verses, these two short verses, verses 20 and 21. We're told that Jesus goes home. Now, we understand that to be Capernaum, his base of operations. He's left there. He's ministered. He's gone back there. He's left there. He's ministered. He's gone back there. Last week, he was at the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up to the mountaintop. Now he's back at Capernaum, likely at Peter's home. And of course, as always happens, crowds follow. And he healed many, and he's teaching. He's back at Capernaum, and the crowds are here to the point. It says in the text they can't even eat. And picture in your mind, the crowds are just pressing in, and the demand for Jesus' attention is so great that he can't even take a break to eat. He's ministering, he's healing, he's teaching, and he can't even stop for a bite to eat. Now, last time I told you, word about Jesus was spreading so far that those from the south, those even from the deep south, were coming to him. His family, like I said, lived in Nazareth. And obviously, the news has traveled this far, so we see in verse 21, and when his family heard of it, everything that he's been doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. How do they respond? It says they went out to seize him. That word seize is to take control. It was used when taking people into custody or arresting someone. They want to stop Jesus from doing what he's doing. They want to stop Jesus from teaching what he's teaching. Presumably, they want to go get him and bring him back to Nazareth where they can keep an eye on him. And the report says that they're saying is that he's crazy. He's out of his mind. Now, why would they say that? Why would they say that about Jesus? Well, the Middle Eastern cultures are what we call honor-shame cultures. They're a collectivistic culture, whereas America is individualistic. In a collectivistic culture, they value interdependence over independence. They see themselves as defined by who they are with the other people, with their membership within a group. What you do, what you say, could either bring honor to your group or your clan or your family, or it could bring shame. And the way Jesus' family was responding indicates that they're afraid he's going to shame the family. And now we might think, well, wait a minute, he's doing all this good. I mean, he's healing people. How could this be shameful? Well, don't forget, he's doing these things on the Sabbath. And that's irritating the religious leaders, and you don't want to get on the religious leader's bad side. And also, Jesus is making these comments about his divinity, and the religious leaders certainly don't like that either. So Jesus' family thinks they've got to put a stop to this before he brings real shame to the family. So they're saying, oh, he's just crazy. He's just out of his mind. He's a loony. You know, just like Jesus' family, we too could respond that way. We too could say he's crazy. We could believe that Jesus was just out of his mind, that he belonged in a mental institute. We could come to that conclusion, but then... How do you explain the miracles? Jesus had to have performed miracles. He had to have performed them or there would have been no crowds. No one would have ever come if people weren't truly being healed. And that was a major reason why the people came to Jesus. So if you believe, well, Jesus is just crazy. Maybe he thought he was God, but, you know, he wasn't really God. How do you explain the miracles? 
how do you explain the crowds? You know, another thing we need to explain, if Jesus is crazy, we have to explain his ability to remain calm and logical even during great times of stress. We see him calmly telling the disciples to get a boat ready just in case he needs to escape the crowds in chapter 3. We saw that last week. We see him respond with wit when the Pharisees question why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. We see him accurately reading the minds of the Pharisees when he forgives the paralytic sin. And then he goes on to create a logical argument for his own divinity. Jesus' flow of thought was clear. He presents himself fully in control of his own mind, and that's not something you see with a person who's lost their hold on reality. Your Savior wasn't crazy. In fact, he was the sanest person who has ever lived. He claimed to be God, but then he backed that claim with miracles, with demonstrations of power, with logical and scriptural arguments. That's not someone who's crazy. That's someone who's dependable. Jesus, who never turned away a cry for healing. Jesus, who didn't even take a bite to eat because the people needed him, that's dependability. Your Savior is dependable. So then let me ask, what stops you from depending on his strength, on his help, on his presence? Where do you lack dependence on your Savior? Let me even get personal with you. What happened this past week that caused you angst? Did you run to the Lord? He will never turn you down. When you come to him, he's dependable. You can believe that Jesus was crazy, but that would be foolish. So Jesus' family leaves Nazareth, and presumably as they're traveling, we get to this next story that's in the middle. Look with me at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them and said to them in this parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and, who, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Here's your second point for a text. You can believe Jesus is a liar, but that would be absurd. You can believe Jesus is a liar, but that would be absurd. Now, there is a lot to unpack in this text, so let's do this together. First of all, scribes had come up from Jerusalem. We've talked about scribes. They were teachers and preachers of the Old Testament, although you may remember they didn't teach the Old Testament really anymore. They taught former scribes' opinions of the Old Testament. And the scribes that we've seen so far through the book of Mark were likely scribes from the area of Galilee where Jesus has been ministering. But at some point, scribes from Jerusalem have come to see Jesus, no doubt as a result of Jesus' fame spreading further and further. 
And the excuse they're giving is that Jesus is that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now that's quite an accusation to make. They are saying Jesus is possessed and through that power, he's doing these miraculous things like casting out demons. They're essentially, essentially trying to explain away how he's casting out demons and they're declaring his claim to deity to be false. He's lying, in other words. He's not from God. He's from Satan. That's what they're saying. Now, who is this Beelzebul guy? And there's a lot of debate on this name and its origin. But one translation is that the name means this, master of the house or master of the dwelling. And that meaning is going to play a significant part in what Jesus is about to say. But before we get there... The name Beelzebul at some point became associated with Satan. And the same is true with this title, Prince of Demons. It's a reference to Satan. The Pharisees are not referring to two beings by saying Beelzebul and the Prince of Demons. They're referring to one being. In fact, this is said again in Matthew 12, 24. This might help clarify. It's on the screen. Matthew recorded these words from the Pharisees, but he combines these two ideas. Look with me on the screen. It says, it is by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So it's not two beings, it's one being, Beelzebul and the prince of demons. Beelzebul is a name, the prince of demons is a title, but they're both associated with Satan. Now Jesus clearly understands this in his response. Look what he says in verse 23. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a king is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand, but it will not be, able, not, not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> First note, what it says to there is that he speaks to them in parables. Jesus often taught in parables, and a parable, just to remind you, is a story to illustrate a point. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Essentially, if a kingdom or a house, meaning a family, is divided against itself, it cannot stand, it cannot endure, it cannot accomplish what it needs to accomplish. If a kingdom or let's say even if a government is constantly infighting, nothing can get done and it could possibly collapse. And you might be saying to yourself, that happens every day. Yes, yes, it does. Our government is constantly inwardly fighting against each other and nothing gets done. Or, in our case, the prevailing party gets its way for the time, but there's certainly no unity. The same thing is with a family. Families fight all the time. And one possible result is the family splits apart. At the very least, there's no unity. But at the most, there's division, there's brokenness, and the family can't remain intact. Jesus is using these images to make a point. What he means here is that he, Jesus, cannot be casting out demons under the power of Satan because then Satan would be attacking himself. What's the purpose of a demon possessing a person? To capture them, to have mastery over them, to keep them captive. If Satan is fighting himself... Why would he want to hold people captive and yet free them at the same time? It makes no sense. It's like saying, 
terrorists are capturing people to hold them for ransom, but they're also letting them go. That doesn't make any sense. It works against itself. Verse 26, Jesus says, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. If Satan is doing this to himself, he is coming to an end. That is, his kingdom is going to crumble. Jesus is saying, if I cast out demons, it can't be by the power of Satan. Therefore, it's from another power. And what power would that be? That power would be divine. It would be God's power. This is yet another way that Jesus is saying, I am God. I am doing this through a greater power than Satan. And what power is that? It's the power of God. Jesus then uses another word picture to describe what he's doing. Look at verse 27 with me. But, this is Jesus continuing to speak, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this might sound a little confusing at first. Jesus is using the picture of a thief, essentially, who binds the strong man, the man of the house, and then plunders his house. Is Jesus comparing himself to a thief? Yes, in a way. Jesus is stealing, so to speak, those who have been captured by Satan. In this parable, Satan is the strong man of the house. Up to this point in history, Satan has roamed the world as the prince of demons. His power was great. His influence was everywhere. His minions possessed people. He had great control. And then Jesus shows up, and like a thief, he binds the strong man, Satan, and plunders his goods. That is, he frees people from the power of Satan. Remember how I said that one definition of Beelzebul was master of the house or master of the dwelling? Satan was the master of the house. He was the prince, but no more. Jesus is defeating the master of the house. He proves that by casting out demons. That is a sign that Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. Now, what Jesus says here might be alluded to way back in Isaiah 49. Read with me on the screen, Isaiah 49, 24, and 25. It says, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Hallelujah. Jesus conquers Satan and sets the captives free. That ought to fire you up. Jesus is at work setting people free. Now let's deal with the next section, verses 28 through 30. Read along with me. Jesus is still speaking. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now this text has caused some angst among Christians. In fact, I once spoke with a guy who was convinced that he had committed the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and had thus lost his salvation. But that's not what this is talking about. 
I want to do two things. First, I want to explain the text to the best of my ability. Then secondly, I want to connect it with what Jesus is saying because this is not a one-off statement. It's not a flippant statement. It's connected with what he's been saying. So first, let me just explain, what does he mean? I want to read verse 28 and 29 again. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, Jesus says, first of all, truly I say to you. That's a phrase that he often repeats, and that truly is the Greek word amen. It's where we get the word amen that we say often after a prayer. It's a strong affirmation of what is stated. We say at the end of the prayer, amen, because it means so let it be, or what we've just prayed, let it be so. Jesus is using this to declare that what he's about to say is strongly affirmed. It's the truth, in other words. And the first part of what he says should be very encouraging to us. He says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Even blasphemies will be forgiven. And by way of definition, to blaspheme is to defame. It's to slander. It's to disrespect. Anyone who defames or disrespects, who blasphemes God, will be forgiven. And that should be encouraging to us. Us who are fallen people and who say and do dishonorable things to God all the time. Those, Jesus said, will be forgiven. Now, as you're reading along this, it's almost like Jesus is saying all sins are going to be forgiven. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that everyone will be forgiven. It's not universalism. He's not saying here that everyone eventually that has ever lived on earth will be saved. That's not what he's saying or will be forgiven. What he's saying here is that any sin is forgivable. Any sin is forgivable. Any sin that you commit, God is able to forgive provided you repent. But there is one exception. He calls this blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus saying that if you take the Holy Spirit's name in vain, like you would Jesus' name in a curse word, that there's no forgiveness and you're condemned to hell? No, that's not what he's saying. Remember the context. What were the Pharisees saying about him? That he's possessed, that he's in league with Satan. He has an unclean spirit. And by saying that, they are denying what their eyes have seen, the healings, the exorcisms, the gospel being proclaimed. Everything that Jesus did, all the miracles, all the exorcisms, everything that he was done was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Jesus emptied himself. Remember that from Philippians 2. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. While on earth, Jesus operated under the power of the Holy Spirit. So to say that he was operating under the power of Satan is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's denying who Jesus is. It's denying the power that he's using. The one sin that is unforgivable, if I can sum this up, the one sin that is unforgivable is unbelief. Unbelief. And this jives with the rest of Scripture. John 3.36 reads, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to deny the power that enabled Jesus to do what he did and thus prove himself to be God. Essentially, it's unbelief. And if you think about it, that makes sense. How could God forgive unbelief? Those who believe in Christ have eternal life. Those who do not believe in Christ have eternal death in hell. For God to forgive unbelief would mean he would have to accept everyone no matter what they believed. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that those who repent and believe will be saved. So the only way that you commit the unforgivable sin is if you perpetually refuse to believe in Christ. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this on the matter. You can read this on the screen. It says, surely what Jesus is speaking of here is not an isolated act, but a settled condition of the soul, the result of a long history of repeated and willful acts of sin. And if the person involved cannot be forgiven, it is not so much that God refuses to forgive as it is the sinner refuses to allow him. No repentance. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus says this because of what the Pharisees were saying. Look at verse 30. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. They were refusing to believe the truth about Jesus. The truth presented right before their eyes, and essentially they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit through their unbelief. And Jesus is warning them, if you continue in this vein, there is no forgiveness. If you refuse to believe Jesus' claim to deity, then you effectively are calling him a liar. If he's not crazy, he's claiming to be God. He's not crazy, then he's a liar. And you can believe Jesus was a liar, but that would be absurd. Think of the proof. Think of the, the evidence that Jesus gave the Pharisees. Again, think of the miracles. But more than that, consider this. If Jesus was lying... If he was in league with Satan, then he was knowingly deceiving everyone, the disciples, the crowds, and everyone. If he was a liar, then he really was a demon because he told people to trust him for their eternal life. Can you think of a worse thing to do than to convince people to trust you with their eternal destiny? You know, it's one thing to be a con man. It's one thing to con people out of hundreds or thousands of dollars, but it's another thing to con someone into thinking you can give them eternal life. That would be horrendous. If Jesus was lying, then he was among the worst people to have ever walked the planet. But you know, there's another thing that we can see from our perspective that they couldn't see yet from our text. If Jesus was lying, then he was a fool because he went to the cross for that lie, knowing it was a lie. And who would do that? It would be absurd to say Jesus is lying, because if he knew he was lying about being God, he willingly sacrificed himself for what he knew was not true. That's just absurd. But my friends, your Savior is not a liar. He was not in league with Satan. He is exactly who he said he was, which means he is someone you can fully rely on. Think about this. How would it affect your relationship with someone if you knew that everything that they said was the truth? 
How would that affect the relationship? You would trust them completely. And if Jesus was not lying about who he was, then he was and is God who cannot lie. We sang about that, who cannot lie, which means he doesn't lie about anything. And if he doesn't lie about anything, then every promise he ever made is 100% trustworthy. This means, as our text points out, that when Jesus says all sins will be forgiven, it's true. That if you have repented of your sins, if you have come to faith in Christ, then you are washed clean by his blood, which means you will not end up in eternal torment like those who deny Christ. Your salvation is secure. Your past is wiped clean. And your future is eternity with the Savior who made you, whose peace and love and joy will be everlasting. Your Savior has bound the strong man, that enemy who hits you with doubts and guilt and anxiety and fear. Jesus has bound that man. The enemy is actually the only one who should be racked with doubts and guilt and anxiety and fear because his realm is coming to an end. He will spend eternity apart from the peace, love, and joy that you and I will experience for all time. So the next time that Satan tries to get at you, you remind yourself of the gospel that Jesus has bound that strong man and he has set you free. We're talking about three ways we can respond to Jesus. We can believe he was crazy, but that would be foolish. We can believe he is a liar, but that would be absurd. There's only one option left. You can believe he is God and accept him as Lord and Savior. You can believe he is God and accept him as Lord and Savior. Look with me at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and mother. Now you see the, the part two of the sandwich method. We return back to the story Mark introduced in verse 20. Jesus' family presumably traveled up from Nazareth. They made it to Galilee. And the text says that they were standing outside and they sent to him. And likely what this means is they're standing outside of Peter's house and probably because of the crowd, they can't get into him, so they send him word. Maybe they just kind of like passed it through people. Could you tell Jesus we're here? And they kind of, you know, like the whole game we used to play telephone. Just passed it all the way to Jesus. Jesus' mother is there. And we know her. She's Mary. Also his brothers. And we actually have their names in Mark chapter 6. Their names are James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And at this point, Jesus' family, like we've said, is claiming that he's crazy. But we know that eventually at least some of them do receive him. We know that James receives him and Judas actually receives him. Judas is most likely Jude who wrote the book of Jude. Now, and because of what we know from Mary in Luke chapters 1 and 2 it's likely that she already has some kind of faith about her son, Jesus. So she's possibly here looking out for her son, making sure her other sons don't go too far. Perhaps that's why she's there. But they can't get to him. 
So the crowd says to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, it's important to remember that in the first century world, one placed high value on respecting and being loyal to one's family. So this would have been accentuated by the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The crowd around him probably expected Jesus to do something, to to go to them, to get to them somehow, or to call them in somehow. But what he actually does is a bit shocking to a first century person. He says in verse 33, he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And some in the crowd probably thought, huh? Now, just to be clear, Jesus responding this way, he's not disrespecting his family. There's nothing disrespectful in the statement that he's making. In fact, we know that Jesus loved his mother so much that even while he was enduring the pain of the cross, he turned to the disciple John and told him to take Mary, his mother, into his home. This wasn't a disregard for his family. Jesus is using this opportunity to point out an important truth, that his true family was spiritual, not physical. The text says in verse 34, and looking about at those around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. This tells us that the crowd around him, probably the disciples and more and others, were probably there because they believed, at least in part, and thus they were his true family. The ties that bind are not so much flesh and blood, but faithfulness to God. And how is faithfulness demonstrated? Jesus tells us in verse 35, for whoever does the will of my father, he is my brother and sister and mother. Faithfulness is expressed in doing the will of God. And that is being obedient to what the Bible commands. What is the Bible commanded? You might sit there and think, a lot. True. The Bible has commanded a lot of things, but let's just boil it down. What is ultimately the Bible saying for us to do? Believe. I've quoted this verse before, but I'll quote it again. John 6, 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Believing in Jesus is doing the work of God and results in adoption into God's family. This idea of believers being a family is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. You can look at these verses on screen. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1, 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We are God's brothers. We are God's sisters. Maybe I should say Jesus. We are Jesus' brothers. We are Jesus' sisters. What does that mean for us who believe in this room? It means we belong. Look around you. Those who are around you who have accepted Christ as Savior are your spiritual brothers and sisters. We are a family that's even stronger than flesh and blood. We belong here. As a believer in Jesus, you belong here. This is your family. So I would ask, how do you treat your family? 
Who in this family do you struggle with? We all clash at times. We all have personality conflicts and other things. Who do you struggle with? I've got news for you. We're going to spend eternity together. Might as well start learning how to do it. Might as well start learning how to apply the one another's. Have you heard about the one another's? The Bible is chock full of one another's, how we are to live with one another. There's a few on the screen, like love one another, John 13, 34. Be devoted to one another, Romans 12, 10. Honor one another, again, Romans 12, 10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. Build up one another, Romans 14, 19. I could go on, but you get the point. This is your spiritual family. Let's treat each other well. Now, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you do not call him Lord, then you're not in his family. But you can be. Think back through the argument I've just laid out. Jesus claimed to be God. That claim is either true or false. If it's false, then he was either crazy or a liar. And I've given ample evidence why it would be illogical to conclude those things. So if those options are ridiculous, and they are ridiculous, then you only have one choice left. He is who he said he was. He's God. He's divine. He's the only one who can save people from their sins. So if that's the conclusion, then won't you give your life to Jesus today? Won't you choose to trust him today? Won't you confess your sins and embrace him by faith? And if you have more questions on that, you can catch me after the service. You can catch one of our elders. We would love to answer any questions. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to show you how you can embrace Jesus. Now, my beloved in Christ, though you and I have put our faith in Christ, we still need this truth that Jesus is Lord. We still need this every single day. We have to go back to who he is. He is God. He took the penalty of our sins. He is reliable. He is trustworthy because he is Lord. And the more that you and I embrace that truth, the stronger our faith will be and the more Jesus will work in our hearts, shaping us to his great purposes. I'd like to end with one of C.S. Lewis' famous quotes from that book I mentioned earlier, Mere Christianity. It goes like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Don't be foolish. Don't be absurd. Believe the truth. He is Lord and Savior. Bow with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, master of heaven and earth, we bow before you 
in humble thanks that you are who you said you are. You are God. You are divine. May our hearts be as accepting as the crowd that was around your feet. May we also be called your brothers and your sisters and your mothers. Lord, teach us what it means in our everyday lives that you are Lord. You are in control. You provide strength and peace and help in times of need. Lord, teach us to love our church family well. Teach us to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to bear one another's burdens so that we may be unified as your church and so that the world may know that we are your disciples because we have love for one another. Help us in that, Lord. We pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.